Well, church, as you're grabbing a seat, if you would, open your Bibles, grab your Bibles, open up to Ephesians chapter 1. Great job, Dan. Thank you all so much for leading this morning. It was awesome. Wasn't that good? Can y'all give them a hand? Man, I love them. Thank y'all very much. Um, we are continuing in a series that we just started last week through the book of Ephesians. Typically, if you are new with us, what we typically do here at Providence North is we preach through books of the Bible. We will occasionally take different blocks of time where we'll go through a series, if you will, but uh, our normative sort of mode of of gathering as a people and walking through the scriptures is to go through books of the Bible. And that way what it does is it allows us to see uh, exactly what God wants from us through these collective ideas that by his spirit has gathered together and given to us as his word. So we want to look at them as a whole so that we can lay our lives on top of what God has for us. And so uh, we find that preaching through these books of the Bible is the most helpful way for us as a body of believers, uh, to grow closer and to know him more and to look more like Jesus. Um, we've got, a, we've got a, a massive one today to get through. And so I was telling the team this morning that I could probably spend 10 weeks preaching on these verses alone that we're going to be in. They are just monumental truths about who God is. They're these big ideas of who God is. And so, but we don't have 10 weeks. I've got like 35 minutes, although it was up to me. I'd have two hours. Josh made sure that it wasn't two hours long. But all that to say is that we've got these scripture journals, and if you don't have one and you're new with us, we've got them in the back. You can grab one, and we want you to be digging in even on a more deeper level about uh, the book of Ephesians, what God wants for us, because there is so much more in here than even I have time uh, to talk about here this morning. So I uh, encourage you through the week, join a community group where you can really begin to flesh these out uh, together as a people. Um, but let's get started. We've got a lot to go through, and you'll, you'll hear why once you hear these amazing verses. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. God's Word says this. If you don't have your Bible, it'll be on the screen. Blessed be God and, the, and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he has lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things in earth, on earth rather. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. This is God's word. Whew. I mean, that is, a, that is a lot right there. That is a huge, huge collection of statements. In fact, in the original language, in the Greek, verses 3 through 14 is one huge, long, run-on sentence. In the original language, there are no punctuation, there is no break, there is no breath. And so if you felt like I, even I was reading fast, we in English had to put breaks and commas and periods to break up all these huge thoughts. In the Greek, as Paul wrote it to the, the church in Ephesus long ago while he was in prison, he didn't even pause to take a breath. It's just this 
massive run-on sentence. He would have flunked out of English class, but he would have got a master class A++ in theology right here. Right? This is, Paul was just so excited to give us this heavenly perspective of who God is that he just starts just pouring words after words after words, and they're not just idle words, but they're carefully crafted, well-thought words about who God is and what he is like. And he just dumps all of these words. We're, we're, we're supposed to feel overwhelmed by it. When you read it and you're like, wow, that's exactly what Paul wants us to feel. We're to be in awe and to be in wonder of the goodness, the grace, the majesty, the saving nature of who God is. One commentator put it this way. I loved it. He said, it's as if a giant uh, grain silo. Uh, if you've ever driven through the Midwest, you see these grain silos. And it's as if you pulled the plug on one and the entire batch of grain, processed grain, just poured out over you and just is washing over you. This is the idea that Paul's doing right here, using words. It's these words are just dumping out over you, and they just aren't seeming to end. They're just coming out and coming out and coming out, and it envelops you. This is what Paul's doing. He's showering us with these words, that we would feel the weight and the gravity of the realities that he's talking about. It's meant to overwhelm us. Ephesians 1 3 through 14, it's like, it, Paul is like Paul is an endurance runner. It's like if he were uh, an endurance athlete. And rather than um, getting maybe slower with each mile that progresses, it's as if he's getting faster and faster and faster and faster. He starts out of the gate and you're like, whoa, that's a quick start. And then he just keeps building and building and building. This is what's happening. It's just this building, 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 building all of these glorious realities all of these redemptive themes without stopping for a period, without stopping for a breath. This is a long 202-word statement in the Greek language. 202 words. He keeps going. Complex, glorious sentence that does one thing. It just oozes God-centered worship. That's what Paul's doing here. He's worshiping. Paul's not really teaching a theology class here. He doesn't get into the minutia. He doesn't get into the idiosyncrasies of all of these statements. He just gives them as truth because Paul is worshiping God for who he is here. One writer said that this, one theologian, a German theologian said, this is the most monstrous sentence conglomeration that I've ever found in the Greek language. It's pretty amazing. And this statement is relevant for a lot of reasons for us today, church. Uh, and one of the reasons I think it's very relevant for us is that uh, you and I, church, were made to praise. We were made for worship. We were made to, to praise something or someone. And what Paul is doing is he's directing that. He's focusing our hearts natural bent to want to be worshipers, to want to ascribe worship to someone or something, and he's directing it at what is true and right and glorious, the one true God, the ultimate thing, the main thing, the point of it all, not the shadows, not the creation, but the creator himself. So he's putting a spotlight on that. And so if you look around in our culture, I mean, you see expressions of praise all over the place, don't you? We're just hardwired for this. Look at young teenage girls screaming for the boy bands, right? The, the, whatever, I don't even know if boy bands are popular anymore, but Justin Timberlake, or look at grown women screaming for Justin Timberlake in his next new song, right? He just came to Houston. We all freaked out about that. My wife was so mad we didn't get to go. I didn't know about it. Sorry, missed the, missed the memo. Sports fans, today's the Super Bowl. People are freaking out about it. I don't even know who's playing. I apologize. I have a much better analogy here. But two teams are playing in the Super Bowl, and a lot of us are really excited about it. And so we go crazy about it. We write their names. We wear their jerseys. We collect their playing cards. No one does that anymore. I did when I was a kid, right? But we're, we're just tuned for, to be worshipers. 
It's, we adjust our schedules around things that we ascribe praise to, that we love, that our hearts long to do. It's the dad that has the new project at Home Depot to create something that he wants to create, maybe for himself or for his kids or whatever. He gets just amped up about it and he can't stop talking about it. He wants to show pictures of the things he's building and what he's done and how it's coming together and how it's progressing until it finally is finished. And then he posts it on Instagram. He's like, look what I've done. And everyone says, that's amazing. Way to go. And he's like, I can't wait for the next one. We're just tuned for it. We crave it. Right? We do it with TV, the new series. It's like Netflix does it for us. They give us recommendations based on this. You would really love this. We're like, I do love that. How do they know? This is amazing. And 10 hours later, you're like, what have I done with my life? And you feel terrible. Right? Or it's the new restaurant, or it's the new recipe, whatever it is. Humanity has never had a problem praising something or someone. Now, if you want to get down to the biblical definition of what all of these things are, if we take these things that just captivate our hearts, whether it be our own image, whether it be sports, whether it be whatever it is, whatever these good things are that we enjoy doing, if we take them and we make them ultimate things, we make those that are objects of worship. The Bible calls those idols. So what we tend to do as people is we take good things and we make them ultimate things. We take things like food or work or sex or money or relationships and we substitute the creator for the creation and we bow down and we go to their altar time and time again thereby committing adultery. Romans 1 tells us, if you want to go back and read about that idea, Romans 1, Paul spells that out in great detail. And this is no small matter. Romans 1 tells us that when we do that, when we make that trade, when we trade worshiping the creation rather than the creator, that failure is called sin in our hearts. And so... What we, can, what we can boil down as we begin to see these threads through Scripture, as we begin to see what the Bible is teaching, is that our sin problem is fundamentally a worship problem, that we become worshipers of just the wrong things. And in our worship of the wrong things, we're led down places that we never thought we'd go. Now, Paul is telling this church in Ephesus these glorious realities of who God is and how he saved them. Because this church had numerous objects of worship. They had Diana that they would fall down and worship. They had the emperor. They had all of these different things that this culture would bow down and chase after in worship. And Paul, at the very beginning of this letter, is writing to this church, he's, and he's reminding them, he's saying, fix your eyes on the author on the one true God. So the question today is not, do I worship or am I a worshiper? The question today, church, is whom do I worship? Whom do we worship? And what Paul is doing rather brilliantly here in Ephesians 1 is he's saying, you should worship the triune God. You should worship the triune God. We find a trinity here in these verses. You should praise him for who he is and for what he's done. And so he gives us this language of praise, and then he gives us these, the reasons that we're to praise. Listen to this again, verses 4 and 5. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Christ Jesus, according to the purpose of his will. Now, this passage has created and generated a lot of debate in a lot of churches for a long, long time. Um, because it mentions these concepts of election, it mentions these concepts of predestination. And while the, that discussion in and of itself is not a bad thing, I love having those discussions. Those are fun uh, kind of coffee shop uh, discussions. Um, the spirit of this text is not that way. Paul is not writing this in a debate style. He's not convincing you. He's not trying to even present to you a new idea. He's simply 
worshiping who God is. And he's telling us exactly who he is through how God is wired and what he's like and how he interacts with his people. And so Paul in Ephesians 1, remember Ephesians is written so that we would have a mountaintop view of God. He doesn't get into a lot of the nuance, but he gives us these glorious realities of the truth of who God is. And so Paul is giving us this picture. He's not going, his, his purpose here is not the nuance of this theology. He's worshiping the God of the Bible. He's teaching us to worship all of who God is. And it begins in verse 3. We looked at that last week. And he says, he begins with this word, blessed. This is Paul beginning his worship thought to God. It begins with worship. Now notice, this is really remarkable, the Trinitarian nature of this passage. The opening verses are Trinitarian. Paul mentions God the Father, He mentions the Lord Jesus Christ, and he mentions every spiritual blessing, alluding to the work of the Holy Spirit. He's pointing us to the triune God, the one true God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. He is the one true God. Worship this one. In verses 3 through 6, you see the blessings that are given to the, from the Father. In verses 7 through 10, you see the blessings given from the Son. In verses 11 through 14, you see the blessings that come from the Holy Spirit. He's saying, God is Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. And he's blessing you. Each person, each head of that Trinity is blessing you in unique and profound ways. And notice how all of our spiritual blessings are in Christ when you read that. In Christ. That word, that phrase, in Christ, appears 11 times in these verses. That it's only through our union in Christ that we experience salvation. Meaning apart from Jesus, apart from him, apart from Christ, we have no spiritual blessings. So Paul's telling us. So, so, church, maybe, maybe you've been here and maybe you've, you've been hurt by the church. Uh, maybe you haven't been to church in a really, really long time. Um, maybe you're kind of tired of turning on the news or reading an article and how Christians are portrayed. You're just like, oh, man, I don't know if I want to be wrapped up in that. Like, geez. Or maybe you're tired of whatever church celebrity or someone or pastor that you may have once known or you've read about that has fallen wayside by another scandal after scandal after scandal, some stupid sin that they've fallen into. Well, this morning, like Paul, I want to commend to you Jesus. Look to Jesus. He is the great and ultimate lead pastor, senior pastor, if you will. He is the object of our affections. That's the point of this text. In Christ, you have all these things. Not in a church, because of a pastor, because of anyone, but the only one to be looking to for these things is your union in Christ. And Paul goes on and points out that our our salvation is ultimately for not just you so that we feel good. It's not just for you. It's for God's glory. It's to shine to be an example, to be a light, to be a visual, visual, tangible reality in our fallen world of the glory and majesty of God. That's our salvation. Look at this phrase that he says, to the praise of his glorious grace. In verse 6, he says it, to the praise of his glory. Verses 12 and 14. So why did God choose to bless us with this great salvation? so that he might be glorified. God saves his people for his glory, that he would look wonderful, that we would see how glorious he really is and how good he really is, not because we've earned something or because the people in which he puts his affection on were deserving of it. In spite of us, he saves us and calls us and makes us a family so that when others look in, they say, that is a good God. Because those people surely didn't deserve it. 
the passage highlights also the grace of God and salvation. We don't deserve these blessings of salvation. We didn't earn it. Paul speaks of glorious grace in verse 6. He speaks of the riches of grace which he has lavished on us in verses 7 through 8. He's still, he's still worshiping. He's using this language of worship. And notice also, this is just a side note that I find remarkable. Paul, the Apostle Paul, as he writes this, as he talks about the realities of our spiritual blessings, the realities of our salvation, he goes from eternity to eternity. From eternity past to eternity future. He starts with before the foundation of the earth. Before the very foundation of the cosmos, of the world. And then in verse 10, he talks about the plan of God to summarize everything in Jesus. In this one long run-on sentence, the Apostle Paul gives us a view of our salvation, our reality, from eternity past to eternity future. From eternity to eternity. This is a passage of worship. Of worship. And remember where Paul is, talking about God's grace and his goodness. All the while, Paul is in a Roman prison uh, with him unsure of what his future will hold, if he will live another day. And he says, the glorious grace of God is ours in Christ Jesus. The riches of his grace, which he's lavished on us, and he's in a cell. So he's in prison worshiping, and he's giving us a model of worship here, church. And so his body was in prison, but his heart was in heaven, wasn't it? So church, regardless of your circumstances you might find yourself in right now, God is worthy of praise. That's what Paul's teaching us here. Regardless of where you might find yourself, he's worthy of, of praise. So that's the language of worship. I just wanted to set the foundation. This isn't a debate text for Paul. This is a worship text. This is the language that he uses for us. Now let's look at the reasons why God is worthy of praise in such a way. So what are the reasons that we worship? What are the reasons that found in Ephesians 1? Well, first, he says that we're chosen by the Father. The second, he, he declares to us, is that we're redeemed by the Son. And the third is that we're assured or we're sealed by the Spirit. Now, if I went through all of those, I would take two and a half hours. So I'm not doing all of those. We're just going to look at this first one. We might hit and the other ones next week. So first of all, Paul says, the reason, I'm worshiping you, God. You're this amazing God. And the first one of the reasons why you're worthy of our worship is because verses 4 and 5 were chosen by the Father. Even as he chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. So this passage, this amazing passage, highlights the gracious election of sinners for salvation. This huge thought. Paul says that God chose us in verse 4. He says that he predestined us in verse 5. And for some for some of us in this room, man, we hear those words and we're like, oh, man, I just do not like talking about this. If I would have knew we were talking about this, I wouldn't have come today, right? We, we're, we just kind of get uncomfortable. Maybe they, those words scare us. Maybe we just don't like them. Maybe we just, I just, surely Paul meant something different here, right? We just, we, we struggle with these. But I want to commend to you, church, that we, that's not what Paul is wanting us to that's not the reaction he's wanting us to have when we hear these words. These words shouldn't inspire fear in us. They should inspire awe. They should inspire worship. That's the nature of this text. That's what Paul's writing to this church and, and to you and I. The idea of God choosing a people to display his wonderful, magnificent glory is not a new idea in the Bible. This is not the first time we encounter this in the scriptures. 
right? Paul's just picking up on a theme that's carried throughout all of Scripture, really. Let me give you a few examples. Uh, God chose to create the world for his glory. If you want to go all the way back, rewind all the way back to very creation of the cosmos, of the stars and the animals and, the, and humans, and the reason we're here is for the glory of God. God chose Abraham to bring blessings to every nation, Genesis 12. God chose the nation of Israel that they may be a light to all the other nations that would display God's glory. Deuteronomy 7, Isaiah 42, you can read those passages. Further, Jesus in the New Testament chooses just 12 disciples, and their job was to bear fruit and multiply for the glory of God. And in doing so, the church is birthed through the choosing of those 12, through the making and multiplying of more disciples. Paul adds this in 1 Corinthians, that God chose what is low and despised in the world so that no human being might boast in his presence. God's in control, his sovereignty, his choosing doesn't create in us an arrogance. Paul says, God did it all so that when one day you stand before him, you cannot boast at all. You can't say, I figured it out. You can't say, I've arrived. You can't say, well, God, I took the steps toward you. God said, no, I did all the work necessary for you. And so in doing so, we give and ascribe to him more praise and more worship. In Ephesians and in Romans and in Acts and in Titus and in First and Second Peter, we read that God chooses individuals for salvation. And these believers make up the church, both Jew and Gentile, from places far off to places near. From every tribe, tongue, and nation. God does this. Our confessional statement as a church says this. We believe, and you'll recognize these terms as taken a lot out of Ephesians 1, we believe from all eternity God determined in grace to save a great multitude of guilty sinners from every tribe and language and people and nation. And to this end he foreknew them and chose them all to the praise of his glorious grace. In love, God commands and implores all people to repent and believe, having set his saving love on those he has chosen and having ordained in Christ to be their redeemer. So what's the nature of this election? How does this work? This big idea. Let's make some observation about this text. First of all, we need to admit something to one another. Uh, we need to admit that there is a great mystery in the doctrine of election. There is a tremendous amount of mystery in the doctrine of election that Paul is speaking of here. This is the mountaintop view. This is the 10,000-foot view. And so to put it into perspective, it's really difficult to even stand up here and talk about it because when you start with this phrase, before the foundation of the world, and to have a guy like me get up here and try to explain to you the nuances of things that happened before the foundation of the world, I simply cannot do it. I can't put it all together perfectly. There is tremendous mystery in the doctrine of election as revealed to us in the scripture. We have to be very careful when you're talking about things that happened before the foundation of the world to say, yeah, I got all the answers. Come check with me. I'll map it all out for you. There's mystery. There is. There's a lot of mystery. Now, uh, forgive my analogy, but I love, uh, if I had a lot of money, I'd be a watch guy. Like I'd buy like really cool watches and like I, I like looking at watches. So I got a watch on right here. This watch was made in 19... 71. This is a 47-year-old watch. I got it on eBay for $10. It's got a cool blue face. Um, 
I put a new band on it because I like to pretend I'm like military. So I put one of these like military looking bands, right? So it makes me look tougher. But it's this really old watch. And there's this, this hobby of kind of watch guys. It's this really weird, obscure world called horology. And we like to study watches. And we like, we like old watches like that. And I was telling Josh, like, my watch and your watch cannot be more different, right? And the cool, th- why do I like this watch? Like, it's just a watch. What's the big deal? It's got a blue face and it's like, cheap eBay watch. The guy didn't know what he had, by the way. I got to steal on this baby, right? Um, <laughs> it's made by a budget line of Belova watches called Caravel. So quick tip, if you want to look for a budget line watch at a good price on eBay, get that. Why do I like these watches? These watches are called automatics. So you don't just get like a quartz watch, you drop a battery in. The cool watches that I like to look at and think are interesting are called automatics. And what they do is they, it self-winds with the movement of your wrist. So a 47-year-old watch, and this technology has been around for a long, long time in watchmaking, but if you were to open up the back of this watch, unlike a quartz watch where there's like a, a chip and a battery in there and it just makes it tick, this thing has gears and little screws and little springs that wind, and the, when, you, when you rotate your wrist, it self-winds that spring to keep the tension and makes sure the second hand keeps going. So Presumably, this watch has never been serviced. It was found, it was some, it was from an estate sale. It's 47 years old, and I put it back on. The guy is like, I'm not sure if it's working, right? Because most of the time people are like, no, it's not working. But I I started moving it, and sure enough, it started going. Now it keeps perfect time. So presumably, as long as I wear this, it'll just keep winding itself. And that's the cool thing about an automatic movement watch. A little history lesson in horology, right? I find it interesting. The reason I find it interesting is because of the complexity of it, the engineering of it all. You get down inside of it, I don't know how it all works. If I were to take out one of the springs, the whole thing would be broken. I wouldn't know how to put it back together. But I love it, and it just it's inspiring to look at and watch the history of it all. And it's just as fascinating to me. I can't explain to you what each gear does, where and how, and why it twists that spring in such a way to make sure that 47 years later, it just keeps going. Paul's doing something similar here for us. Paul, probably, Paul can't explain to you all the, all the intricacies, right? But he's not doing that here. He's giving us that 10,000-foot view that we should look at it and just be, wow, that's incredible. He speaks about what only God can do here. He speaks to his eternal, secret purposes. And you and I were not invited to that meeting, right? We just, we weren't. We weren't in on that one. And so we've got to admit some mystery here, right? God is God and we are not. Deuteronomy reminds us the secret things belong to God. So you and I, we might disagree with the finer points of this mystery, but we can still fellowship and worship together and serve together, right? It's difficult, I heard one person say it this way, it's difficult for finite creatures with a three-ounce fallen brain to comprehend how this doctrine relates to the love of God for all people. It's like, oh, that's fair. Right? How does it all work together? We've got to be okay on some levels with the mystery. So when we see mystery in the Bible, it should be a cue for us to start worshiping. Church, I will. I don't think you want a God that you have 100% figured out that you can just put on the shelf or put in your back pocket and take him out and look at him whenever you want and say, oh, that's God. Got him all figured out. He's mysterious. He's wonderful. His ways are above our ways. He's alive. He's working. And Paul in Ephesians is worshiping God for all of who he is, his goodness, his mystery, his mystery and that our salvation was from the very plan of God, the counsel of his will. Secondly, I'm not just gonna, we can't just explain it away like that. Okay, it's a mystery. Yeah, great. We've got to affirm mystery, yes, but we also have to affirm that there are other attributes of God, as we've seen here, that are clearly affirmed in this text. In other words, we may not know how it all fits together. We may not know how the puzzle piece all locked in in the mind of God because we weren't at that meeting, but we are being taught something wonderful and true about the nature of God that is clear. In this text, we see that God is perfectly loving. Verse 4. We see that he is eternally sovereign. 
meaning totally in control, verse 5. We see that he is gloriously gracious, verses 6 through 8, and we see that he is infinitely wise, verse 4. So while we may not know everything about the mystery of election and salvation and how it all pieces together, we can trust in what we do know about the nature of God himself as revealed to us in the scriptures. Notice the language of God's sovereignty that he mentions here, that he wants us to grasp, that he wants us to know. He mentions predestination, verses 5 and 11. He mentions God's good pleasure or purpose in verses 5 and 9. He mentions God's will. It's mentioned three times, verses 5, 9, and 11. He mentions his purpose, the purpose of him, of God, verses 9 and 11. He mentions his plan, verse 10. So God is sovereign. His plan happens. And the doctrine of election is consistent with God's plan. Paul's saying, is God really in control of all things? Yes. Is God really sovereign over all? Does like Colossians, does it say, does he hold all of the world in the palm of his hand? Does he make the cosmos spin? Was he really speaking everything into creation? Yes. Then if that's true, then our salvation is consistent with the power, might, and sovereignty of God in the Bible. But God is also glorious and gracious in this text. God's choosing is an expression of God's grace. For more reading on that, Romans 11 and 2 Timothy 1.9. So what we can conclude from that is God doesn't choose us for anything good in us. So the doctrine of election is consistent with God's good grace toward the undeserving, namely you and I. We can't stand up and say, well, I figured it out. I did it. Why can't you do it? I picked myself up by the bootstraps and found God, and now I've got this great life. No. God said, while we were sinners, Christ died for us. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, and Christ made us alive together with him. God did it. So this is consistent with God's grace. So God is gracious toward the undeserving. So the sovereignty of God is in uh, is in conjunction with our, this understanding of us being undeserving and him doing what we could not do for ourselves. God's, thirdly, God is wise. God's choosing is an expression of his infinite wisdom. He has a plan. He is in charge, not us. His ways are higher than our ways. And we also see in this passage that God is loving. And salvation and, and God saving for himself a people is an expression of love for his children. Paul says it this way in 4 and 5. In love, he predestined us for adoption. So whatever you believe about election, however maybe you've thought about that or categorized it, we must believe that it is consistent with God's love. In love, he predestined us for adoption. In love, he predestined us for adoption. This, these go hand in hand in the mind of God. So we might not understand how this mystery works, but we must affirm that God is sovereign that God is gracious, that God is wise, and that God is loving, and that whatever he does is consistent with who he is. And so while all of our questions about human beings' responsibility or our free will aren't answered in this passage, they're, just, they're not clearly answered here, we should note there's something amazing in this passage, that this passage itself, in this same thought, in this one long run-on sentence, mentions the necessity of personal belief in the gospel. It says it right here in the same passage that we get all of our great God-choosing predestination stuff. It also says that we are to believe in the gospel. In Paul's mind and in God's economy, they're, just, they're not at odds with one another. Remember, this is one long sentence in the Greek. And so what's remarkable is that in this one sentence, we can talk about God choosing us. And in the same sentence, in verse 13, it says, you believed in the gospel. God chose us and says, praise God, you believed in the gospel. 
God's sovereignty, human responsibility in the same sentence, seemingly congruent with one another, the mystery of God. They're not at odds in the mind of Paul and in the economy of God. Only God could write this sentence. So election and faith belong in the same sentence. We may not understand this, but church, I want to implore that we would embrace it because we find it here. Um, And just by the way, we as Christians embrace a lot of truths that are mysteriously inconsistent at times, or they seem that way in our fallen mind, right? For example, if you have an orthodox view of Jesus, you believe that he is 100% human and 100% divine. That's a mystery. How do you explain that? That's a mystery. Uh, If you believe that the Bible is God's word to us, given to us by the divine hand of God, you're saying that the Bible has human authorship and a divine authorship. There's a mystery. And so these glimpses are glorious mysteries of God that we're given insights into. So I love this. Someone asked the famous preacher Charles Spurgeon how he reconciled sovereignty and man's responsibility. And he responded, I don't have to reconcile friends. I like that. Maybe that's a cop-out, but I'm going to start using that. So if you want to get coffee with me, I don't have to reconcile friends. Spurgeon said it. He's smarter than me, right? But he said, listen, they're friends. They go hand in hand. We, We can't wrap our minds fully around it. But the economy of God, the things that happen in the counsel of God's will before the foundation of the world are, 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 are so far above us. But they make perfect sense in the economy of God. They're friends. Now, I do want to address this. Some of us can get the very wrong idea about election. Church, this should never, this doctrine that Paul is discussing and unfolding here for us, that I believe is just a glorious one that actually provides a whole lot of comfort to us because it says that God's in control and we're not, it should never cast doubt to you on whether or not you are welcome to come to Jesus. That is not the purpose of this doctrine. Let me say that again. The doctrine of election, church, should never cast doubt for you on whether you are welcome to run to Jesus. All may come to him. All may come to him. That's the invitation. Russell Moore says this, describing this reality. He says, God is not some metaphysical airport security screener waving through the secretly pre-approved and sending the rest into a holding tank for questioning. This is not what's happening here. He goes on to say, God isn't treating us like puppets made of meat, forcing us along by his capricious whim. Instead, the doctrine of election tells us that all of us who have come to know Christ are here on purpose. I like that. That's in his book, Adopted for Life. It's a great book. Russell Moore. Another question that's often bubbles up after you think about these truths of the realities of God or when it comes to evangelism. Well, if God's in charge, I don't need to tell anyone about him. That couldn't be further from the truth. In fact, when Paul himself was discouraged while he was planting churches in Corinth and Acts, we just preached through Acts, you'll remember, Jesus comes to Paul in his moment of discouragement, and he says this to the apostle Paul in Acts 18. He says, don't be afraid. He says, go on speaking, meaning go on speaking the gospel. And Jesus says, for I have many people in this city. Jesus, your job, our job as believers is to be proclaimers of the message. Our job isn't to get people saved. That's the work of Christ. Jesus says, I have many people in this city. Go, do not be afraid, church. Go on proclaiming the goodness of Jesus, the great glorious gospel, the realities of salvation, the glorious grace that we've been found and wrapped up in. Do not be afraid. I have many people in this city. Some people will believe when you speak the gospel. 
So even the hardest of people can be converted, can be reborn, can come to faith in Christ because of this. This is important. It is not about the quality of your presentation. It's about the power of God. That's the great reality of the sovereignty of God. If it were all about the presentation, God would only choose to use the best orders and use the best people that were in front of people, but God uses ordinary people to advance his gospel every day. It's not about the quality of your presentation. It's about the power of God. We speak it, God saves. It's his work and it's by his power. God does the saving. Fourth, we see that our election is in Christ. We are, we are chosen in the chosen one. F.F. Bruce says, He is the fountain, the origin, and the executor. All that has been involved in, ele- in, in election and its fruits depend on him, meaning Christ. So in light of all of these things, church, I think this, this is the reality that I want us to grasp. Well, one Never be fearful about coming to Jesus because of this. He says, come. My, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It does not negate the necessity to tell others about the glorious saving good news of Jesus. It just gives us a lot of peace knowing that it's not about my words, but it's about his power. And thirdly, the doctrine of election as given to us in the scriptures should produce in us a great humility. A great humility. Uh, No one can be arrogant because we've done nothing. God did it. God accomplished it. God moved. God sent Jesus. God sent him to the cross, shed his blood, covered us with us, saved us, adopted us, made us into a family. And so it can't produce anything of a arrogance in us. It should humble us at his feet. And so for those that want to argue against this, and maybe you've met some of those people, uh, Paul says this to them in Romans 9. Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? And for those that this does create a little bit of an arrogance or maybe an ego, like, oh, I'm I'm in the club, right? Right? Um, I would contend that you simply don't understand the doctrine of election. This doctrine should put us on our face in worship like Paul is. Blessed be God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We should worship. So, to recap, if you're a note taker, we just talked about the nature of election is mysterious It is consistent with God's nature. It's consistent with human responsibility. It's in Christ, and it humbles us. The last thing, and we're almost done here, that I want us to point out, that I want us to look at, is our salvation is wonderful. The election is wonderful. It's this wonderful doctrine. But we are not simply just saved and left to, to grovel at the feet of God. We're not saved and rescued and and purchased and blood-bought, and we're not just made second-class citizens in the kingdom of God, left to grovel at his feet, wondering what might come next to this great, oh, sovereign. The Bible says that our salvation is rooted in adoption. Adoption. Very often, when the Bible talks about our salvation, it's coupled with this idea of our adoption. So God doesn't choose you as second class. He chooses you as his very own sons and daughters. Your salvation and my salvation means we are adopted into the family of God. J.I. Packer says it this way. Adoption is the highest privilege the gospel offers. It's an amazing privilege to be adopted into the family of God. Ephesians 1, Paul tells us what it means to be adopted. This is what it means. Catch this, church. It means to have all the rights and privileges that belong to God's children, namely Jesus, his only begotten son. All the rights and privileges bestowed upon Jesus are now given to us as sons and daughters. That's adoption. 
And he tells us the when of adoption. Before the foundation of the world, he did this. We were God's children then, and we're here on purpose. It's part of God's great plan. God in love sent Jesus to the cross so that you and I could be called sons and daughters. That we could call God Abba Father, or that means that's the personal name for God, meaning dad or daddy. He adopts us to such a level that we can call the great, magnificent, sovereign, almighty controller of the very cosmos, dad. Adoption as sons and daughters. God did that. He gave us everything. Church, from eternity past, he knew you. He knew all your failures. He knew your flaws. He knew your great moments. He knew your worst moments. He knew your sin. He knew every glorious thought you'd ever have, and he knew every evil thought you'd ever have. And knowing all of it, in love, he chose you as a son and daughter. Through Jesus Christ, bought for himself to the praise of his glorious grace. The point of this text, church, as we close, is to teach every believer, this is what Paul wants us to grab, that we owe our adoption into God's family to the good pleasure of God's will. And that should cause us to be worshipers. That we were chosen before the foundation of the world. We were predestined to sonship and holiness and love, not according to what we had done or according to what we understood or according to who our parents were or according to our race or according to our religious background or according to where we live or according to where we work or according to our status or wealth or what we willed or even wanted. We were chosen by God himself through Jesus Christ in love according to the good pleasure of God's will, and it should well up within us worship of the glorious realities of being called children of God. Let's pray, church. Lord Jesus, God, I just thank you for your word. God, I thank you that your ways are higher than our ways. But Lord, we thank you for the reality that you have called us sons and daughters because of Christ. We thank you that the election is consistent with even human responsibility and that they don't seem at odds in your economy. God, help us to embrace more of who you are. Help it to well up within us to be worshipers. Help us to embrace the mysteries of the kingdom of God, knowing God your great plan before the very foundation of the world was to know us by name and to call us into a family. Though we can't articulate every nuance, God, I pray that we would worship you because of it. And God, I pray that we might be active participants in telling more people about the glorious great Savior that's come to lavish love and grace on rebels to make them children, sons and daughters, heirs of the kingdom. Lord, help us not to be afraid. Help us to be comforted. Help us to go. Help us to be worshipers. Help us to be image bearers. Help us to show others these glorious realities. Help us understand them in our hearts. And so for these next few moments, may we simply be your sons and daughters, giving you the worship you deserve. Hear us now, Lord, in Jesus' name.